Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the inaugural episode of KC Talks. I'm Alina Rabakova, the director of the international program at the Kiev School of Economics, and I'm delighted to be guiding our discussion today. In this podcast, we aim to shed light on pressing economic and political issues through informed discussions and debates. As we kick off our first episode, it's my honor to introduce our esteemed guest, Agasse Demare. Agasse is the Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit and the author of Backfire, a profound exploration of U.S. sanctions and their worldwide impact. I'm not going to read all the reviews on the book, but as the Wall Street Journal put it, Backfire is a balanced, fast-paced and often surprising account. It's not something as you would expect from a review of the sanctions book, you know, fast-paced, often surprising account of the growing influence that sanctions have had on businesses, economies, and people around the world over recent decades. So today we will dwell into the realities of sanctions on Russia, explore the potential for data manipulation and violations, and discuss the importance of maintaining pressure on the Kremlin. So without further ado, let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome, Agassi. Thank you for joining us on KSC Talks. Thank you so much for having me today. And as we were saying before the podcast started, I'm delighted to be here. So thank you so, so much for this invitation. Thank you. And I also want to remind to those actually who did dial in for the for the current uh, live stream, they should be able to ask questions. But of course, you know, those who cannot dial in, they'll be able to listen to it on various podcasting platforms later on. So maybe let me start with the question I get often asked, and I would love to hear Agatha's response. So how is the Russian economy really doing in your view? Not great. <laughs> it's absolutely not doing great. And I think that there is a lot of debate on this topic. I'm French. I think the debate is heavily politicized, for instance, in France. But when we take a look at the data, it's very clear that the Russian economy is not doing great. And it is also clear that sanctions are biting. I think that it's useful before we answer this question to take a look at the objectives of sanctions against Russia, because I think there is a lot of confusion around their objectives. It's not about regime change, because we know from history that sanctions never work when the goal would be regime change. It's also not about the collapse of the Russian economy. We're talking about the ninth largest economy in the world. It also wouldn't be in the interest of the US and other Western countries to have a collapse of such a big economy. And finally, it's not about changing Russia's calculus in Ukraine from one day to another. That wouldn't be realistic. I think the impacts of sanctions and the goals of sanctions, well, it's threefold. And when we take a look at this, it's clear the Russian economy is not doing great. And it's clear also that sanctions are working. The first goal is about sending a message of diplomatic unity and resolve to both Ukraine, of course, but also to Russia. I don't think that Putin expected, for instance, that half of the reserves of the Russian Central Bank would be blocked by Western countries. So I think that from that perspective, it's working. The second objective is about making it more difficult for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. And from that perspective, it's clear that it's working. The Russian economy registered a recession last year. I'm sure we will discuss this again, Alina. Are Russian statistics reliable? But let's just keep it to a recession and it will probably contract again this year. And so what that means is that it is increasingly difficult for the Kremlin to finance 
the war. It is very difficult with resources being constrained while at the same time maintaining social stability in Russia. All of this costs money and there will be no easy way out for the Kremlin because gradually sanctions will really take their toll and bite increasingly on the Russian economy. And finally, there's a third objective. And I think that's what really worries the Kremlin. It's about a slow asphyxiation of the Russian energy sector. I will explain what I mean here. A number of Russian energy fields are currently coming to maturity. Energy is super important for the Russian economy. It's about one third of Russia's GDP, half of fiscal resources, maybe 60% of exports. That's data before the invasion. And what's happening is that these resources, well, they're coming to maturity. That is to say the reserves are being depleted. So Russia will need to build new oil and gas fields but to do so, it needs technology that is mostly American. And this technology isn't going to be coming to Russia. So in the long run, we're looking at a slow asphyxiation of the Russian energy sector. And the latest data from the International Energy Agency confirmed just that. At the moment, 30% of globally traded oil and gas comes from Russia, but this share will fall to 15% by 2030, which is pretty much tomorrow. And so it's very hard to see what the Russian economy will rely on once the energy sector has well, suffered from this slow asphyxiation. So in a nutshell, the Russian economy is not doing great. And I don't think that we should believe Russian disinformation claiming everything is going very well. Thank you so much. And I really love your summary of the objectives. I think uh, people often get confused about objectives of sanctions and, this, and that creates unrealistic expectations. But of course, I cannot, you already mentioned the data quality. I cannot avoid asking the question, should we even bother looking at statistics? What statistics has been closed? Maybe some examples. And also, how can we analyze Russian economy in this new reality? It's very hard. So should we bother looking at Russian statistics? Yes, absolutely. I think that we should still, you know, try to take a look at the data. But what's really happening is that statistical disinformation has become one more aspect of Russian disinformation around the war. We're seeing disinformation regarding what's happening on the battlefield. We're seeing disinformation about a number of topics, but we're also seeing a lot of disinformation from the Kremlin claiming A, that sanctions don't work against Russia, but also B, that sanctions are backfiring on European economies. And this is wrong. I think that it doesn't stand to scrutiny. What's happening is that Russia has really made statistics part of its information war. And so I've actually discussed this topic in a foreign policy article. I think there are three main techniques from the Russian government on this front. The first technique is about classifying entire data sets. Trade data these days? Uh, very hard, actually. Well, I think they have been unclassified recently, a tiny little bit, but for a long while, we didn't have access to anything. So it was very hard to have any idea about what was going on on the trade front, which is obviously very important because it's the resources of the Russian state. So if you don't like the data, you just hide them, you don't publish them anymore. That's a very simple tool. The second thing is delaying the publication of statistics that don't look too rosy. Actually, there had been some mystery about the 2022 uh, Russian recession data. It was postponed by several weeks. We didn't know what was really going on. We've seen this happening. That well statistic being delayed and sometimes being published in the dead of the night. So that's another trick. And finally, the statistics are often revised. 
which is another trick, you know, and that maybe gets a bit technical, but when you're an economist, you're taking a look at the evolution. And so you need to calculate growth rates. But if the base constantly changes, well, it's impossible to do that. And increasingly, it will be very difficult to have an idea about what's really going on in the Russian economy. There's also one more thing that I wanted to say. Even beyond all of these problems, it's not clear whether GDP means anything in Russia these days. Because last year, GDP data were distorted by three factors in Russia. The first factor was actually the spike in energy prices that the war provoked. It's not sanctions that provoked the spike in energy prices. It is really the war. And I think that we should really tackle this disinformation narrative. So of course, this has boosted Russia's GDP given the important uh, role of exports in Russia's GDP. The second thing is that the Russian economy is artificially boosted by the war economy. When you build missiles, it boosts your GDP data, but it doesn't really translate into higher living standards for the Russian population. And finally, there is a third thing. When you calculate GDP, you actually subtract imports. The higher the imports, the smaller the GDP. And imports collapsed last year in Russia, which also artificially boosted Russia's GDP. So overall, I would say that Russia's GDP figure aren't really an accurate picture of everything that's going on. And you add on top of everything, all the disinformation data. So yes, let's take a look at them, but I think they should be taken with a pinch of salt. Thank you so much. And I also want to flag that the Kiev School of Economics publishes a monthly chart book on Russian statistics. We also don't ignore, we try to find the truth somewhere in there. And thank you, Agatha, for sharing that uh, publication as well. And there will be in the next publication coming up, hopefully this week, as we get more final data from Russia. But I also want to ask Agatha, can you share your tricks of trade? You know, what are, you know, you explained all the issues with GDP and, and hidden statistics by Russia and revisions. So what are the indicators that you would like to be focused, us to all of us to focus in the coming months that might be more revealing than GDP or other statistics that's hidden? Yeah, I agree. GDP, maybe not so much. I think that some data are still very useful to take a look at what's really going on uh, in the Russian economy. And the statistical handbook that you're publishing is amazing. I would really encourage everyone to take a look at it. It's amazing data. I think that when you take a look at data for retail sales, for instance, well, it's very clear that the Russian economy isn't doing great. And what that really shows is that Russian households are not consuming as much as they used to. High inflation is, of course, a problem, but also bad sentiment about everything that's going on. So that's useful data, I would say. And data on retail sales have been consistently bad in Russia. Then um, another indicator that I really like is indicator about the situation of the automotive sector, because usually car production is a good bellwether of what's happening in an economy. And we are seeing that Russia's car production has dropped off a cliff by about 60 or 70% even last year, year on year. So that's really huge, a very huge drop. And again, what this shows is lack of confidence from Russian households, but also lack of access to spare parts and high technology from Western countries. Because last year, sanctions mostly restricted Russia's 
imports. Restrictions on, Ru on Russia's exports came later from late 2022, early 2023. So last year, the situation was really mostly about restricting imports and we saw that very much in the automotive sector. Russian cars these days are pretty basic. It's back to the ladder, I would say. And we're seeing this also in the airplane sector. Same story, lack of access to spare parts. So you can have these data points, you know, um, these are usually monthly data that I find, well, more useful. But again, everything should be taken with a pinch of salt. And I'm very skeptical about, for instance, GDP data. Uh, we're saying that, for instance, there are discrepancies. Some, well, some studies have shown that if you build an index of Russia's trade, the data seem to be a bit different from Russian official data. Not completely different, but still a bit different. So I would say big aggregate data should definitely be taken with a pinch of salt. Thank you so much. And um, we are getting some first questions, but before that, I also wanted to ask you about the fiscal situation. You mm -hmm. know, so we've had this beginning of the year, which has showed diverse, devastating reduction in revenues at the same time, pick up of uh, spending. And they said maybe it's military spending, but also spending continued to increase in April again. Uh, what is your take on the situation? Sort of give us the, the key points and also your expectations for the rest of the year. Well, I would say that the key point here is that the G7 price cap and the EU oil embargo are having an impact on Russia's finances. And I think that this is a very positive story because there were fears before the imposition of these restrictions on Russian oil exports that these would lead to a spike in oil prices that would have a detrimental impact, especially on the emerging economies. This has not happened. So that's the very positive news. And at the same time, we're seeing that these measures that make it more difficult in theory, because there is sanctions evasion, for Russia to export oil above a price of $60 per barrel, where we're seeing that this works. As you've said, Russia's fiscal situation really isn't great. We're seeing from the data that Russia's deficits will balloon um, this year. So this is not great news, of course, for the Kremlin. That being said, the Kremlin has reserves. There is the sovereign wealth fund. There are also reserves, you know, in the central bank. Maybe they could be used usually you're not supposed to do that but god knows what's happening um but at some point you know when you're running on your reserves these will be exhausted and i think that's really a good metaphor of what's happening for the russian economy these days i think that russia is really running on its reserves you know but at some point for lack of replenishment this will be increasingly difficult and i think that's a good summary of the situation that's happening for russia's fiscal reserves but also energy reserves also potentially in the military field because we're seeing that sanctions make it more difficult for russia to import semiconductors these are very important to build missiles that are being used in ukraine so in all fields russia is a big economy ninth largest in the world so it's coming from a position of strength and huge reserves but these will be increasingly depleted and i don't think there will be any easy way out for the kremlin um, from that perspective in any of these fields thank you so much and thank you for flagging also fiscal because that was a big chunk of the support to the economy last year was the dramatic increase in expenditure which is unlikely to be repeated this year you know i think spending last year increased more than 25 percent so far you know if they were to increase the spending it's unlikely to be financed and also the fact that the reserves were arrested, although we're still having the debate about damages and passing it on to Ukraine. But uh, even the fact that reserves were arrested, that constrained fiscal space for Russia, macroeconomic space for Russia. And I think that was beyond the signal, was still very impactful um, in terms of limiting the macroeconomic space.
But of course, with this challenging, sort of even more uncertain forecasts with um, lack of clarity on the data and purposeful disinformation from Russia, what should we think about the forecasts from the international organizations? We have international organizations who have looked on Russia for many years. They have um, a lot of data, maybe sometimes more data than what we have, a lot of analysis which, which they choose not to publish in this environment. But should we bother much about their forecasts? You know, they have some of them have more new forecasts than others. Um, what is your take on the range of the forecasts and how much we should be guided by this uh, forecasts? I'm glad you asked actually because I think that's a forced disinformation trick from Russia. Russia actually communicates very heavily on outside consensus forecasts. You know, I'm a forecaster myself and the only thing I can tell you is I'm sure my forecast for Russia's recession this year, minus 2.2%, is wrong. I'm pretty sure of this, you know. <laughs> you should always take forecasts with a pinch of salt. But what's happening is that among forecasters, there is something called the consensus. And there are some organizations that take maybe the 20 biggest or 30 biggest forecasters in the world, and they calculate the average and the median. And I think that usually this is a very good guide of what's happening. You know, you're literally pulling the data from 30 organizations that do just that, run econometric models. But something that's been really interesting is that Russia has been communicating heavily on outside consensus forecasts. That is to say that, you know, you have a pool of forecasts and you have very pessimistic forecasts and very optimistic forecasts. And what we're seeing from Russia these days is that Russia only communicates about these extremely optimistic forecasts. Maybe these forecasts are right. We will know maybe only next year if we ever get access to the data. But that's not really the question. The question is about, you know, communicating something truthful. And we're seeing this trick only to communicate about more optimistic, rosier outside consensus forecasts when the consensus is actually very pessimistic. The consensus is that Russia will record a recession again this year of around 2 or 3%. So not a pretty picture. This is due to the fact, as we've discussed, that sanctions are biting. This is also due to the fact that oil prices are lower than last year. So of course, the situation is more difficult. And also, as we've discussed, the fact that Russia's resources will be gradually constrained. So a difficult outlook and sanctions will really have this cumulative, slow impact, but that will be very, very hard for Russia to escape. Thank you so much. And I'm very glad you bring this aspect of the effectiveness of sanctions, because in a way, the fork, I, the way I think about the uncertainty of 2023 forecast is that it is partially endogenous. It depends how effective we are in implementing the sanctions this mm -hmm. year, oil price cap avoidance, you know, other sort of evasion and access to the critical technology that Russia might get. So what do you think, which sanctions so far are the most effective and where we think we need to do more work? I think all sanctions are effective. I think that it's very difficult to pinpoint one sanction and say this is the one sanction that is the most effective. I think that we should see sanctions as a big toolkit and it's part of a broader toolkit of aid to Ukraine, military aid, financial aid, and also other measures against Russia. So I think that we should take a look at sanctions from that perspective. That being said, if you really push me for an answer on, on this one, I think there are two measures that are especially 
well, useful, I would say, to constrain Russia's financial resources. Because if we go back to the objectives that I've discussed, it's about making it harder for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. It, it won't be a miracle tool. It won't be a magical tool. We need to be realistic. But what is it that is making it's more well harder for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. Well, I would say two things. The first thing, constraining Russia's financial resources. Waging war is very costly. So anything that restricts Russia's financial resources is an effective sanction. And from that perspective, I would say that the G7 EU oil price cap is effective. Actually, you just published, Alina, an excellent study showing this, exactly this, and I would encourage everyone to take a look at it. So that's a measure that is effective, especially, as we've said, given it didn't lead to a spike in oil prices globally. So no ripple effects, contrary to Russian disinformation, claiming that sanctions were fueling food insecurity or energy insecurity or every problem under the sun. That's not the case, actually. that's That's been, I would say, a policy that has been implemented and that is very effective. And the second restriction is about, well, restrictions on access to technology. We've discussed the missiles, of course. It is more difficult to build missiles if you don't have access to top-notch semiconductors. And it will be more difficult for Russia to develop oil and gas fields, especially in the Arctic, if it doesn't have access to this top-notch technology. So really, if you push me for that, I would say restrictions on Russian energy exports. Definitely the European oil embargo is also biting because Russia has lost its main market for energy exports and it has rerouted these exports towards India, which is actually getting oil at a discount. And second thing, all restrictions on the technological sector. But again, sanctions, I think, are part of a broader package and everything is cumulative and gradual and everything has an impact. Thank you so much. And I want to spend now a little bit of time on sanctions, evasion, avoidance, uh, uh, pure breaking of sanctions obligations. Uh, you flagged two key sanctions that are working if we press you, right? One is constraining resources uh, to Russia. And in that sense, embargo and the cap are working to an extent. And the second one, access to critical technology and wedging the war, but also in terms of energy and tech. So where do you see here success in implementation and also where you're particularly worried and how we can address those concerns and then we can spend more time also the differences between what the EU can do what the US can do and other countries part of the coalition against Russia's war on Ukraine so essentially the question is about sanctions evasion so yes sanctions evasion is happening I think that it is to be expected. Pretty much any country that is under sanctions is engaging in sanctions evasion. I think that it is not bizarre that any country under sanctions would try to circumvent these measures. I am not convinced that Russia is managing to circumvent sanctions at a scale that is sufficient for the scale of the Russian economy. What I mean here is that a country like Belarus is also under sanctions. It is a very small economy. So I'm pretty sure that sanctions evasion can be done at a scale that is 
uh, you know, that corresponds to the size of the Belarusian economy. I am much more skeptical that Russia is managing to access all the semiconductors that it would like to import, for instance. And actually, when we take a look at the data, the big question was China, but China doesn't seem to be lending a helping hand to Russia. When we take a look at the data, of course, this should be taken with a pinch of salt. These are Chinese customs data, and I've written an article for Foreign Affairs on this. We're seeing that Chinese companies only increased their exports to Russia by 12.8% last year. This sounds solid, but there are two big caveats. A, it's in line with the rise in Chinese exports towards other Chinese trade partners. And B, these are coming from very low values. Actually, Russia is a ne negligible destination for Chinese exports. So I think that we should be careful here when we take a look at sanctions evasion. It doesn't mean it's not happening there. We're seeing a number of countries, such as Turkey, for instance, that don't have a single semiconductor factory, having become big export hubs of semiconductors to Russia. I think that this begs for some, you know, look at what's really happening. So I think that this is one key thing. The first key thing will be to take a look at what's happening in some countries such as Turkey, the UAE, maybe Serbia, maybe Kazakhstan also, and other small countries that are a part of the Eurasian Economic Union, about what's really going on there. But again, I don't think that the scale is enough for the size of the Russian economy. So I think that this will be the first thing. And then, actually, because I've read your excellent paper, Elina, I know that a number of companies are managing to circumvent the EU G7 oil price cap uh, for exports of Russian oil from Pacific ports, especially Cosmino. So not to China, not to India, but probably to other destinations. It looks like a number of these exports are happening at a price that is higher than $60 per barrel. So that, of course, begs for some look again at what's really happening. And we're seeing that a number of companies engaged in this are located again in the UAE or in Hong Kong, etc., etc. So probably there could be some diplomatic signals sent to these countries, but it's it's very hard you know, to get them on board. I don't think they will implement sanctions on Russia anytime soon. But still, uh, I'm pretty sure that the US could do some signaling that it is not a great idea to help Russia circumvent sanctions. Thank you. And uh, I really also enjoyed reading your foreign, uh, foreign affairs um, article, foreign policy article on China, because I think it brings an important point where maybe the Chinese companies themselves are not shipping that much. But what we see from the statistics, including what Kiev School Economics has been collecting from different sources, is that there is also an on-shipment going where either via China or other diverse group of countries, of including dual-use and sensitive materials. So we definitely need to do more. So with that in, 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 in mind, what do you think can the EU do? We have O'Sullivan, O'Brien, we have also UK's counterpart, I think also, I forgot the name for a second, sorry. Uh, I'm sure you'll bring it up. So you have this uh, uh, sort of um, 
gentlemen going to the countries, meeting them, uh, flagging the importance of uh, sort of aligning countries with uh, the policy on Ukraine. But at the same time, should we go as far as secondary sanctions? You know, we know for the EU it's a very sensitive topic. At the same time, we have seen Chinese companies being added to the SDN lists uh, in the US already, which is sort of a secondary sanction. So where, you know, should we do that? What is your take on the secondary sanctions? That's a difficult debate, to be honest. I think this points to the fact that US sanctions and European sanctions are different. US sanctions can have what you called a secondary component. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when the US imposes secondary sanctions, and I should highlight here, this is not the case yet against Russia, except for the military sector, then all companies around the world, American companies and foreign companies, have to make a choice between the sanctioned market, so in that case, Russia, and the American market. So of course, that's not really a choice. You know, when you're a multinational, you can't really lose access to the, Amer the American market. That's the US take on sanctions. The European take on sanctions is that the EU doesn't really like US secondary sanctions. Actually, it has resented US secondary sanctions for a long time because US secondary sanctions against Iran notably have had an impact on European companies. So you have this debate between both sides of the Atlantic. We're seeing actually some steps from the EU moving towards some sorts of secondary sanctions against Russia because the EU has made it very clear that Chinese companies engaging in sanctions evasion could be targeted by European measures. I think that's a positive step, but I think it will take a lot of time because it, it is a completely different conception of sanctions philosophically. If you ask me about the priorities to tackle sanctions evasion and, and more generally about the priorities for sanctions implementation this year and maybe next year, I would say there are two big priorities and they won't come as a surprise to you because we've discussed this. The first one will be, of course, implementation. Implementation, implementation, implementation. I think that we have moved from big announcements, I think the, the European Union is at its 11th sanctions package, towards implementation. I think it will be about two things. The first thing will be within the EU about harmonizing the implementation of sanctions. What do I mean? Well, I mean here that sanctions in the European Union are adopted at the European level, but implemented at the member state level. And that means that some European member states can have different interpretations of sanctions law. And of course, this creates loopholes. It's not that some member states don't want to implement sanctions. It's that, you know, you have a legal document, you can interpret it in different ways. So that's the first thing. But actually, overall, I would say that EU unity on sanctions has been pretty good, despite Hungary's statements, for instance. I think when we take a look at the broader picture, it's been pretty impressive, but still harmonizing the implementation of sanctions across EU member states. The second thing will be what we've discussed. It's about getting the UAE, Turkey, Serbia, Kazakhstan, this list of countries, you know, not on board, but still less engaging and some sanctions evasion because we know that this is happening. This will be extremely difficult, um, I think, if we're completely honest, because a number of countries try to remain neutral, which is effectively backing Russia, from my perspective, to try to reap economic benefits from engaging with both sides. So I think that we should be realistic here. This will be very difficult. And then the second thing that I think will be a priority, we've alluded to it, will be tackling Russian disinformation, linking sanctions to a number of 
supposed problems, for instance, saying that sanctions have created a spike in energy prices. Well, not really, you know. The European Union has still not imposed sanctions on the import of Russian gas. And the embargo, the European embargo on Russian oil only came into effect in late 2022. The spike in global energy prices is due to the invasion of Ukraine. It's not the other way around. But I think that Russia is trying to communicate this disinformation narrative and trying to build resentment against sanctions, especially in emerging states. We're seeing this work very well in some African countries, for instance. I think this is very dangerous. From my personal point of view, this is extremely dangerous because Russia is trying to really fuel this resentment against former colonial powers. So it has a very fertile ground here, but it will be also very difficult to tackle just because Western democracies are democracies. So they don't do propaganda campaigns to explain why sanctions are not fueling food insecurity or energy insecurity. On the food question, it's not actually sanctions that are fueling food insecurity. It is Russia's blockade of Ukrainian ports and blackmail about the grain steel. But, you know, Russia is trying to fuel this disinformation narrative, and I think this is very dangerous. And it will be another challenge for Western democracies to tackle it, but it will also be very difficult. So two challenges, tackling Russian disinformation and implementation, implementation and implementation of sanctions. Thank you so much. And that brings us also naturally to the next question. So what you sort of already started talking about, how we can convince more countries to join sanctions coalition? What can be done differently from the perspective, of course, of uh, countries uh, who have already imposed sanctions, but also from the perspective of Ukraine? What more can we do? How we can do something differently in terms of explaining to these countries what is in their interest and also in the global interest? And finding out, asking them also that question. Well, it's about taking a stance, but I think that sadly a number of countries are refusing to take a stance um, against Russia's aggression. I think that it, it is useful here, and actually we've published a map at the Economist Intelligence Unit showing just this, and it, it has been misunderstood. Um, it is about the fact that about two-thirds of the, the population globally live in countries that are neutral or that actually haven't taken a stance condemning Russia. And I find this very worrying and very dangerous personally, but I don't have a perfect solution to this just because this is also happening because of Russia disinformation campaigns. These are not new, by the way, you know, sanctions, um, Russia is using sanctions these days, but during the COVID pandemic, Russia was peddling the same disinformation narrative saying that Western countries were hoarding vaccines and that Russia would come to the rescue of developing states in the global south with its Sputnik V vaccine that was actually very expensive. Um, but so it's it's nothing new, but I don't know what tools Western democracies will have just because we're democracies again. So we don't really engage in information campaigns or campaigns to try to explain what Russia is doing. Um, I think that would be useful, but that's not something that Western democracies are doing. So it's about one by one explaining the dangers of, well, engaging uh, in sanctions evasion, if that is the case, and also taking a moral stance supporting Ukraine. But if we are completely honest, this will be very difficult also because, you know, Russia is selling discounted oil to a number of countries and these countries you know find it that it's it's not a bad deal um so i think that this will be extremely difficult and i i don't have a, a magic solution unfortunately to that one thank you so much and um 
We also have a question, another question from the audience, and I think it links in with the timing of sanctions. With time, do you expect sanctions to become more effective or less effective? And the question is, um, you know, at what stage would you say uh, we should expect uh, companies stopping over compliance? That maybe in the beginning they over comply, then they figure out, oh, wait a second, sanctions are not that scary. We found out where the legal line is. We can work with this. So, and also what kind of precautions we should take, uh, you know, uh, to, to respond to that. Thank you. That's a big question. Um, on overcompliance, I think overcompliance is part of the problem, but I think that a number of companies are exiting the Russian market because of reputational issues. I don't think that it looks really great these days to do business in Russia. And I think that is actually the main reason why a number of multinationals have exited the Russian market. It's actually not about sanctions. If you take a look at sanctions, sanctions don't really make it impossible to do business in Russia these days. It is really about reputational risk. And I think that if we have the assumption that sanctions will remain in place for many years to come, because unfortunately there is no end in sight to the war in Ukraine. Well, I think that we will see a gradual decoupling of the Chinese slash Russia markets on the one hand and Western markets on the other end. Actually, this is what we're seeing for oil these days. You know, we're seeing a very fragmented market. We're seeing that Russia is, well, not having much ties economically with Europe, for instance, and Western markets anymore. And I think that this trend will deepen. So I think that this points to the fact that sanctions will be increasingly effective. And if we go back to everything that we've discussed, sanctions on technology in particular will be increasingly effective because, you know, it's very, very hard to rebuild technological supply chains from scratch. You can do that for very basic stuff, but technology, I mean, building semiconductors, that's super tricky. You need engineers, you need experts, you need, well, you know, a trained workforce, which is something that Russia doesn't have. Actually, Russia's economic outlook was bleak even before 2014 and the annexation of Crimea. You know, it was bleak because of a number of factors, bleak demographic prospects, declining population pretty much, low productivity growth. These are the two main factors for long-term growth. Also climate change, it will lead to less demand for Russian fossil fuels. So I think overall, it is really a bleak outlook. That being said, I should make a big caveat here because we're also seeing in the very long run what I call, and I actually discussed that in my book, increasing sanctions vaccination from countries that are targeted by sanctions. I think it's it's been misunderstood. This won't have a magical impact from one day to another, helping Russia shun sanctions altogether from one day to another. It's really about a slow trend. Sanctions at the moment rely on access to financial channels. It is actually up to banks globally to say, no, you cannot do that transaction with Russia because of sanctions. And so unsurprisingly, a number of countries under sanctions, such as Russia, but also China, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, I mean, you have the coalition of the rogues, <laughs> They're building sanctions-proof financial channels. So this is about de-dollarization, for instance, using the dollar and the euro less for bilateral trade. Russia and China do that quite a lot, actually. 
bilaterally. The second tool is also alternatives to SWIFT. SWIFT is the global Rolodex connecting all banks with each other. And in 2012, Western countries cut the access of Iran to SWIFT. And that was really a wake-up call for a number of countries. And China is building SIPS, which is an alternative to SWIFT. It is much smaller, but if China were to be cut off from SWIFT entirely, or if Russia were to be cut off from SWIFT entirely, which is not the case, by the way, then they would have access to this backup plan. And then finally, the third tool is central bank digital currencies stored on digital wallets on mobile phones, completely immune to sanctions. So I think overall, when you take a look at these three innovations and you put them all together, it means that sanctions could gradually in a few decades become ineffective against their targets. And actually, I think this is a very dangerous development. That's what I discuss in my book. Um, not only for sanctions, actually, but also to track, for instance, nuclear proliferation. Because to track nuclear proliferation, Western countries rely on tracking financial channels and financial transactions that look suspicious. But if nuclear proliferators or terror groups have access to alternative financial channels, Western-proof financial channels, then it will be harder to track their activities. And I think this will make the world much less of a safe place. Thank you so much. I wanted to sort of come back briefly to the uh, companies leaving Russia or not leaving Russia. And from my perspective, it seems to be a very sort of short-termist view for companies that are still staying there because of uh, maybe greed, maybe they already invested in substantial plans. They're announcing that they're no longer produce, uh, putting in new investment, but they continue to operate the existing production plants in Russia. Because uh, the reason I say it is a very short-termist view, because the tightening of the regulation to exit have gone progressively more aggressive, even over the last six months. Because the objective there is not to have a constructive relationship with the foreign company. The objective is there to be able to keep hostages uh, as needed, be it bank or industrial companies. But what can we do to incentivize the companies to leave in, again, in a democratic uh, way? Not We are not a state-controlled uh, sort of autocracy, which can just order their companies to stop doing business. But how can we incentivize banks, which continue to finance Russia, and in a way undermine this whole toolbox of support to Ukraine, military, financial, economic statecraft? But then we have our companies actually supporting Russia on the other side and making money from it. What would be the sort of the channels that we can use to incentivize them to leave? This is a very difficult question. I think that if you ask me whether fines are the solution, I'm not entirely sure that this would be the solution uh, to impose fines on companies that are still doing business with Russia. I think there are two solutions. For me, the first one is about tightening sanctions to make it even more difficult to do business with Russia and to simply make it unprofitable to do business with Russia. Because I think at the end of the day, what really matters for companies is the bottom line. So if doing business with Russia becomes so difficult that it is more expensive, I think that, you know, this will be a first step towards convincing a number of companies to exit the Russian market. And then the second thing is about the reputational risk. I think that a number of companies are still operating in Russia, maybe under the radar. I think that this reputational question is a big one. So I think that this would be the second thing. But at the end of the day, it's all about 
convincing people to take a moral stance. I don't think people should be forced to do it. I think people should be convinced because we live in Western democracies and I, I'm very glad we do. But it is very difficult and, and much, much more difficult than just to impose, you know, restrictions. Thank you so much. I'm looking, there are many questions coming in, uh, but um, sort of a more sort of detailed and now even more challenging questions. So um, we talked a little bit about the aviation industry, we talked about military, and here there are some related questions. So what have you seen in your analysis in Russia's ability to circumvent sanctions and procure spare parts for the aviation industry or maybe harvest existing planes? And a related question on the military production, it appears that Russia has increased military production. Uh, we know that in any country, the more sophisticated military or more critical military tends to rely more on the domestic components. But what can we do in case of Russia? So these are the questions about export controls, uh, prevention of access to critical uh, components by Russia. So I think on the aviation question, it is very clear that the Russian aeros aerospace sector is really not doing great. I think that we're seeing a number of things with Russia uh, essentially taking spare parts from one plane to use them in another plane because it is really struggling to source components. Because, you know, when you take a look at things, the two big airplane manufacturers or Western manufacturers, the two biggest ones in the world, Airbus, and Boeing. So I don't think that Russia has any magical fix. We've seen reports that Russia is harvesting semiconductors from fridges, for instance, or from a number of electronic appliances. I think this is highly probably happening, but I strongly doubt, as we discussed, that this is enough for the scale and the size of the Russian economy. You know, you're talking about a fleet of thousands of aircraft, so this is very difficult. Um, when we take a look at the military sector, I should say here I am not a military expert, but I think that this question, it all goes back to sanctions evasion. Yes, of course, Russia is managing to smuggle some semiconductors, but I think that in the grand scheme of things, what's happening is that both China and Russia last year saw their access to top-notch semiconductors being curbed by US export controls. And so that was actually a bet that was made by Western countries that by curbing the access of both countries to top-notch semiconductors, well, you know, it would have an impact. And it had made it very difficult for both countries to collaborate on that front because the few high-tech semiconductors that China has, it is not sending them to Russia. So I think that this is very significant. That being said, smuggling does happen. You know, I was mentioning the Turkey example. So it all points to the fact that sanctions implementation can be tightened, but this is extremely difficult. You know, it is about being on the ground. It is about collecting intelligence about what's happening. It is about having sources about what's happening. So I don't think that we should think that Western countries aren't doing enough or aren't doing everything that they should be doing. I mean, I'm a former French Treasury official and I know these things are very, very difficult. They take a lot of time. It's about a number of cases. Um, so, of course, implementation needs to be tightened, but it is very hard. And I think that we also need to recognize it. It won't be anything with a magic fix from one night to another, but it will be gradual tightening of the screws. Thank you. And we have also a follow up question from the audience about um, sort of we've heard about two major sectors and you explained it to us very well in terms of automotive 
aviation that have struggled. What do you think should be the next sector you expect to be the next sector to experience problems? And looking at some of the analysts, you know, Zubarevich has been very uh, outspoken about the regional geography of mm-hmm. Russia and the likely problems that it's going to experience. Some other analysts, what is your outlook on the, on the next shoe to drop, so to say, in terms of industrial output? Well, I think that the three main ones, um, as we've discussed, so you have airplanes, you have automotive, you have military is going to struggle, you know, because building missiles is one thing, but building good missiles is another thing. Um, So I think these three have been very, very badly hit. I don't think that there will be any easy solution for Russia for that. And more broadly, what this points to is that any sector that has any links to IT, to high technology, is going to suffer quite a lot. There is actually something that we haven't discussed, but that is also very significant. It is a brain drain. We know that tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands, again, very hard to know the real data. We don't have any reliable statistics on this, but a lot of Russian engineers have left Russia after the invasion of Ukraine to protest against what was happening. And this will have an impact, you know, on Russia's ability to do high tech stuff or even just technology stuff. Because if you don't have a trained workforce, that is very hard. If you don't have access to Western technology, you need to recreate supply chains from scratch, extremely hard. If you don't have Western companies coming with FDI and technology, also extremely difficult. And as we've discussed, China isn't coming to the rescue also because Chinese fears, uh, firms fear US secondary sanctions potentially. So what's the way out for the Kremlin? Personally, I don't see it. And I think that it will be a slow, gradual decrease and stagnation of the Russian economy. From next year, we should see maybe slow growth in Russia, but we shouldn't forget that Russia's GDP will have dropped last year and likely this year. And actually, when we take a look at the data, Russia's GDP shouldn't get back to pre-invasion levels before 2027. I think overall, this this tells everything. Slow stagnation, bleak outlook, and, and then you add to this all the demographic question, the productivity question, low investment, climate change, etc., etc. I think every sector is actually going to be impacted if you if you ask me, especially high-tech ones. Thank you so much. Yes, I could not agree more with you on this. I think the high-tech, you know, there are the sectors that used to contribute to diversification, produce more exports outside commodity exports, are the ones that are most actually ironically relying on imports and foreign, foreign know-how. So I think this is sort of the first chance of uh, this diversification is gone for Russia in the near future, for sure. And then also, as you mentioned before, maybe I'd add the fourth sector here, so air, automotive, military, but as you mentioned before, also energy, which development of new field will be increasing. It's already been curved from 2014, but it will also increasingly be uh, be undermined uh, um, going forward. We're getting more questions from the audience. So um, this one, this time more on the fiscal side, you know, we sort of the two related questions. One is, we talk about reducing Russian revenues, we talk about challenges, but it doesn't seem they're going to run out of it tomorrow. You know, they're finding ways to finance it uh, so far. They have the National Wellbeing Fund still there. They can load up banks with domestic borrowing. So, you know, when is the breaking point? And related question to that, is there the case for lowering the oil price cap now? Uh, you know, would it or would invasion increase so much that we will not get the result? Um, so, you know, may, how do we get to the point that Russian fiscal deficit becomes too hard to finance? 
Very difficult question. The way I would put it is that the Russian fiscal situation, it's a closed loop at the moment. It is really a closed loop because Russia doesn't have access to external financing anymore. It's not raising any money on capital markets globally. So it is Russian banks that are financing the deficit. They are doing that. You know, Russia doesn't really have a problem, well, not a big problem, to place its debt domestically. But you know, when you have this closed circuit, it is very, very fragile. And I think that the situation is going to deteriorate gradually. It won't happen from one day to another. Sure, the reserves of the sovereign wealth fund are also important, but we're seeing that they're being depleted and also they're not entirely liquid, which is very important. You know, when you take a look at sovereign uh, wealth funds, you need to take a look at liquid reserves, because if you can't have really access to these reserves, they're not very useful to finance your fiscal deficit. But here it's it's hard to have access to data. But I so I don't really have a precise answer. I think anyone telling you they have a precise answer of this is the day when Russia is going to run out of cash, they're probably lying. But I think increasingly difficult, maybe in a few years, it won't be a collapse. It will be about making choices, you know, financing the war, preserving social stability, helping banks, um, financing public services, schools, hospitals, etc, etc, etc. It's about really forcing the Kremlin to make choices. So very, very hard, not, not a collapse thing, um, I would say. On the oil price cap, I think there is a case for lowering the price of the oil price cap, but my priority would be, and we're always getting back to this, and I'm so sorry, about implementation. You know, as your great study, Elena, has shown recently, we're seeing that a number of companies are managing to help Russia export oil from Pacific ports above the price cap. And it looks like there is involvement from Western firms. So I think that implementation could be you know, even more important than lowering the price gap because we're seeing that these exports, if I'm not mistaken, are done at an average price of 73 US dollar per barrel. This is $13 above the oil price cap. So even if you lower the oil price cap, I'm not sure it will have such a big, meaningful impact. I think it's more about implementation again. Thank you so much. And indeed, uh, the implementation and also who captures the rents from, you know, we see the discount because of transportation and insurance costs to India. But is it Russian companies that are providing the service and maybe capturing this uh, money uh, as well? So we have, uh, let me just check, we have more questions coming, but um, I don't want to miss one. I um, want to ask you myself in the meantime a question on uh, you talked about medium-term outlook for russia which was already bleak because the the country has been being uh, robbed blind already before this corruption has spilled over into a war first war and now second war in ukraine but where do you see sort of russia in five ten years from now if it continues on this trajectory what will be the relationship with china we talked about global fragmentation we talk about the french shoring here in the us so what is your expectation for russia sort of a more longer term five to ten years and relationship with china so i was calculating in my head so that's 2033 well will russia be in 2033 so i think that there are a number of things to say here i don't see sanctions going away anytime soon so i think that russia will still be under sanctions so that points to decoupling of russian supply chains with western supply chains this is actually this has happened already 
in 2022 and it, this has happened very fast. We're seeing actually in Europe the push to have more LNG terminals. We're seeing a push in Europe towards renewables. We're seeing, you know, some adaptation in the world and in Europe in particular to a world without Russian gas. Of course, this will be painful for some countries that used to rely heavily on Russian gas, such as Germany. Germany's industrial model was built on Russian gas. But we're seeing this adaptation come very fast. And I would bet that Russia will never again be a major supplier of hydrocarbons to the European market. I'm not even sure it will ever again be a supplier of hydrocarbons to the European market. So that's, from the Western perspective, decoupling. Then the big question is China. My analysis here is that Russia is China's vessel. Actually, Emmanuel Macron has said this in an interview a few days ago, and this has made the Kremlin extremely angry. <laughs> There's been denials from Peskov, which shows, you know, that Macron has hit a nerve. <laughs> and I think this is absolutely true when we take a look at the data. The relationship between Russia and China is heavily unbalanced. And we're seeing this exactly, you know, we're seeing this with Chinese companies not going to the Russian market, not building ties to a market that, by the way, isn't exactly attractive. You know, Russia is in a recession. It is not going to record growth this year. Intellectual property rights aren't respected. We're seeing Russia do hostage diplomacy with Western companies. I think the Chinese leadership will be extremely careful here with Russia. And I think that in terms of Russia being a supplier of hydrocarbons, it has shown it is not reliable. And this is also one of the reasons why China isn't probably going to increase imports of Russian energy much more than it has done already. So Russia will be the vassal, um, I would say, of China, and I don't see any end to this situation anytime soon, because if we take a look at the broader picture, even pre-2014 and pre-sanctions, the first sanctions were imposed in 2014, again, the picture of the Russian economy wasn't great because of a number of factors. So I would say overall, this points to stagnation of the Russian economy, lost opportunities, of course, for the Russian economy, but stagnation, not collapse. I don't think that we should think this can even happen, but slow stagnation, declining living standards, missed opportunities. So not really a great picture. And of course, climate change is going to accelerate this trend because if you have lower demand for Russian hydrocarbons, it is very hard to see what economic model can be the Russian model. You know, I've, I've covered Russia for a very long while and all the attempts to diversify the economy have always failed. It is not an economy that has ever been diversified. So I, I don't see any, any easy way out here. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are coming closer to an hour, but it's a fantastic place to stop. We talked about sanctions implementation enforcement. We talked about very important point of Russian statistics and disinformation and how Russia uses that to sort of uh, explain away um, hikes uh, in uh, commodity prices and the suffering, especially in the countries and emerging markets by sanctions versus the reality of explaining it by the war attacking Ukraine. Um, thank you so much, Agatha, for the, this enlightening discussion. And I could continue for many more hours uh, learning from you. I've been taking notes here. And also thank you to our audience for tuning in to the inaugural episode of KC Talks. There will be many more to come. Um, today's conversation has provided you with some fresh 
perspectives on the sanctions against Russia. We tried to take as many questions as we could. I saw that there are still questions being left. So do reach out for, with, to us, including with your suggestions for next speakers. If you found this episode informative and uh, are interested in further deep dives into economic and political issues, do follow us on Twitter at KC Institute for updates on future episodes. And we already have some plans for the guests and topics in store for you. Also remember that this episode will be available soon on various podcasting pl platforms for you to listen on your bike ride to work or drive to work um, at your convenience. And again, thank you everybody for joining us today. Until the next time, this is Elina Rybakova with Agatha Demarin signing off. Thank you, Agatha. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you everyone for listening today.